Luke for inviting me, man. This has been a great weekend. You guys are blessed with some awesome teenagers. And I know a lot of times we talk about how teenagers are kind of the next generation of leaders, but that's not true all the way they are, but they're also leaders now, and I'm looking forward to hearing all of the stories about how you guys are taking the land uh, over the next few months and years. Uh, man, this is a good day to be here. I didn't know they were going to be doing baptism, uh, but we got to see a lot of salvations this morning, right? Like people saved from their sins. Ashton was saved from a concussion. Luke was saved from a lawsuit. Like, it was, uh, that was awesome. Uh, Really glad to be here with you guys, uh, and I, I, I often say this when I go to churches, uh, I usually say good morning fam or family. I say fam because we're doing ministry in the lower ninth ward, and you have to talk like that. Uh, but uh, it's true, and I don't say that kind of flippantly, like we are, the, the body of Christ is called to love one another deeply like family. Uh, scripture uses familial terms for, uh, uh, for us specifically it's a, there's a reason why it, they tell us to to cre- greet one another with a holy kiss you don't have to do that to me I don't, that's cool but like to, to that you're my brother and you're my sister and God is our father and Jesus is our brother and our friend these are very so so good morning family I'm grateful for Luke and the time that I've been able to spend with him and just connect to his heart uh, for and his vision for this city and for Shreveport and, uh, uh, man, I look forward to a fruitful partnership over the years. I'm grateful that he is also connected with our vision, um, the vision that God's put on our heart for the reconciliation of all things in New Orleans, specifically in the Lower Ninth Ward for us. And so thank you uh, for letting me be here. I don't want to use all my time saying thank you, but thank you, <laughs> thank, thank you uh, for, for the honor that it is to be here. My name's Shane. Shane Booker. I am married to a beautiful woman named Jessica. I'm not sure if we're going to get that up there this morning, uh, but um, it's probably a good thing. She'd just be a distraction to you guys. Her beauty is just, you know. Um, We have two children, a nine-year-old little girl named Chloe. Uh, By the way, I don't think I told you guys that. No love, obey experience. That's how we spell Chloe's name. I should have told you that story. It's super cool. But anyways, Chloe's our nine-year-old little girl, and we have a 14-year-old son uh, named Carson. And, uh, man, we, uh, we're just, we've just been about it. I remember, I don't know, four years into ministry, made some real mistakes in ministry, had, had kind of been taught that ministry was success was one thing, and I ran after that, and I fell flat on my face because that's never what ministry was supposed to be about. And through that painful experience, God began to shape what ministry really was about. And all of the other stuff, like seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you, right? Um, th- that's, that was my job. Ministry was just seeking God's face, running after him, being as obedient as I could in my flesh and in this, with the spirit of God in me as I was following him. That's what success was. And, uh, and so we've been doing that. I told somebody this weekend, like, I hope that the mark of my life is when I'm gone that they say, man, that guy ran after Jesus. Like, he gave all of his life to trying to be obedient to the things God called him to do. And that's taken us a lot of places. Uh, we started in Panama City. We moved to the North Shore of Lake Pontchartrain for a few years in student ministry. Then moved back to Panama City for three years. And then we went to Miami on the start of our church planning journey in 2017. Then to Birmingham for two years. And this was all kind of preparation and just learning 
developing our capacities for the things God called us to do. So Birmingham for a couple of years. And while I was in Birmingham, Reynolds told you I visited New Orleans, <coughs> um, which I had been introduced when we were on the North Shore to New Orleans. Love the culture, love the people. Um, it's just a, just, just a dope city. But, um, uh, you know, we always wanted to get back there, but really didn't think that that was ever going to happen. When we were in Miami, we actually went and visited, and Jessica and I both heard the Spirit say clearly, like, no, it's not where you're supposed to be. And we're like... Dang it, man, because <laughs> we really, really love the city. Uh, but I was visiting. It just wasn't the right time at that point. We had some other things that we had to do, some other preparations that God had to do in us. And I was driving away, like Randall said, and I looked in my rear view, just not even thinking about it. I saw the skyline, and I literally started to cry because my heart broke, like this desire to be there with those people, to, to, to be a part of the kingdom of heaven forcefully advancing in that place because the city is overrun by the systems of this world and the prince of the power of the air has done his work in that place and the systems of oppression and injustice, the systems that it bring uh, uh, the opposite of the rule of the kingdom of heaven to that place are very real. And God has gifted me and he's gifted you and he's gifted us together to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth in real and tangible ways so you can taste it and see that the Lord is good. So you can touch it and hold it. So you can bring goodness, the goodness of the kingdom of heaven to places. And so as we've been trying to figure out how to do that and walk in obedience, I've dragged my wife and my kids. That's not true. They've come willingly most of the time all over the world. Um, and Jessica, I'm really sad she didn't get to be here this weekend, but one day you'll get to know she's very much a rooted person, kind of reserved, not super outgoing, adrenaline, like she could do without it ever, you know what I mean? Like she didn't even drink coffee because it makes her feel jittery. I'm like, how do you live in this world? But uh, I mean, she just is very rooted person, very uh, like security and dependability are important to her. And that's not the life we've lived. It's just not. Uh, when we got married, we took our honeymoon, we went to the mountains in Tennessee. <laughs> and I woke up the first morning after our honeymoon, I was like, all right, I mean, it's 6 a.m., like, I'm ready to make them. We, we got eight days or so, like, and we're not wasting this, right? Let's get, we're going hiking, like, we're going to see rivers and waterfalls. I wake up at eight, around nine, because she told me, she's like, I really like to sleep in, so nine o'clock was about uh, as late as I was going to let her do that. I woke up and said, hey, let's, let's go, right? We're fixing to hit the, hit the woods, like, we're going to find some cool stuff. She's like, no. <laughs> This is my honeymoon. Like, I'm not leaving this room for however many days we're here. And I'm like, so that's, that just shows you, like, how her idea of fun was doing absolutely nothing. My idea was fun, of fun was, like, packing every little thing and adventure I could find in one, uh, in, in, in one place and running after it as hard as I could. So at the end of our honeymoon, she promised me she knew I always wanted to go skydiving because I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. And uh, I had something I'd always want to do. So she said she would. And she was excited about it until that morning, right? And we get in the car. We're driving to Knoxville where we're going to jump from. <clears throat> and uh, I'm driving, listening to Switchfoot. Like, I'm, I'm stoked, right? Tell <laughs> like, you to move. Like, I'm, you know, like I was doing my thing. And uh, I'm, I'm, like, I'm looking over her, and she's, like, just staring out the window. You know what I mean? I'm like, baby, good? She's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, well, I'll, I'll talk about food because she's a foodie. Talk about, let's talk about what she wants for dinner because that'll, that'll cheer her up a little bit. I said, baby, what do you want for dinner? She goes, I don't know. And at that moment, 
I knew that something was broken inside of her. Like, she, what do you, you, you never not know where you, what kind of food you want to eat. I was like, what do you mean you don't know? She's like, I just, I don't know. I don't really want to talk about it. I was like, well, this is weird. So we get to the place, and, you know, in your mind, you have these, like, delusions of grandeur. Like, this is going to be super high-tech spot. Like, everything's going to be on point. The, the, you know, people that are jumping with you are going to be, like, you know, look like they're ex-military, and they're just going to have it all figured out. We get there, and it's like this shack, right? And the plane is like, it looks like if you blow on it too hard, the wings are going to fall off. Like, there's duct tape and, like, weird stuff going on. And I'm like, uh, it'll probably be fine. You know what I mean? And I'm not thinking. I'm a new husband. I'm not thinking a whole lot about how Jessica's feeling at this point. I'm just stoked. I'm pumped to get in this plane and risk my life. Which sounds weird when you say it like that. So we get in, and they give us our jumpsuits, and they say, hey, go get changed, and we'll uh, we'll take you to do the thing and so I go and I get changed and they give me this like y'all you don't even know like I look like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible when I came out like black all the way down like these really dope like visors that fit perfectly over my glasses so I had sunglasses on but you couldn't really tell like that I, I, I could still see good like I, I was just I looked phenomenal <laughs> Jessica comes out a minute later and she <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she's got on this white jumpsuit for like these primary color palm trees and flamingos all over it. She looked ridiculous, bro. And so being the deeply perceptive, empathetic husband I was, I looked at her deep eyes and I said, you look like a clown. And I started doing the clown dance. And she didn't think that was funny at all, right? But um, I soon got my just rewards. Uh, because when you get up in the plane, what I didn't realize is that tandem jumping means that some big hairy dude is strapped to your back. It was bad enough that I had some big hairy dude strapped to my back, but then I looked over and there was some big hairy dude strapped to my wife's back with his strong arms wrapped around her and him whispering in her ear how much he was going to take care of her. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so, um, uh, you know, payback was pretty horrible. Um, so <laughs> we get up in the air. She goes first. Uh, and she jumps, and she has the time of her life. Uh, I think that's what she'd say. She really enjoyed it anyway. She had a good time, and I did too. It was something, something beautiful about seeing the world. Right? It's a new perspective that you get from seeing the world at 30,000 feet or however far it is um, from a parachute. It's really crazy when you see it just, like, just screaming at you. But then you hit that parachute, and it's just peaceful, it's quiet, and you just see things differently. And that's kind of what it's been like our whole marriage. Like, I've asked Jessica to jump out of airplane after airplane after airplane metaphorically, and she's done it. Um, and she's not done it begrudgingly. She's done it willingly because she sees her role in our family as bringing the stabilization Right, And so where God's designed me to go and to um, not always think about uh, the safety of a situation or the security of a situation, like that's not the, my first space to be in. That is her first space to be in. And so God brought us together so that we're this beautiful balance. And I have to listen to her when she says, hey, that's, we don't need to do that yet right? We don't need to go there yet. We don't need to put our kids in this situation yet. This is how our kids are feeling now, right? And she listens to me when I say, look, I, this is what I think God's calling us to do. And we, we, we 
engage with one another in really beautiful ways. And we've seen the Spirit of God um, honor that. We don't always do it perfectly, I promise. <laughs> um, but when we do, like we've seen God honor that, and he's moved us in places where we feel, feel um, like we're experiencing life to the full. Right? It doesn't mean it's always easy. It's always fun. Sometimes it's really, really hard, but it's always good. It's, it's always good. Even when it doesn't feel like it's good, we can look back a year later and in hindsight see that it's been good. And that's kind of what it's been like moving into ministry in the Lower Ninth Ward. The Lower Ninth Ward is a difficult place. New Orleans in and of itself is a difficult city. But the Lower Ninth Ward is kind of like the difficult part of a difficult city. Um, its inception, it started out as a runaway slave community, and it's always been, ever since then, it's always been the place where the city sends its outcasts, and it's, it's downtrodden, it's, it's, uh, it's have-nots, right? The people that it doesn't really want to deal with, it's been the place where those people have congregated, whether forcefully put there, um, or exiled there, or just that's just where they feel like they belong because they can't find a spot, Right? in the rest of what's going on in the city. It's really a beautiful patch of land. It's surrounded on three sides by water, right? One is uh, um, the Bayou Benavue uh, on the uh, north side. On the south side is the Mississippi River. And then on the east side is an industrial canal that they dug in the 50s. Um, and then on the uh, west side is, is St. Bernard Parish. It's a different parish that you go into. Um, but it's not, and it's not very big. It's about uh, two and a half miles by two and a half miles. It's almost a perfect square. Um, it was the hardest hit during Katrina. In uh, some places, the neighborhood had 20 foot of water. So you can imagine um, a lot of people stayed uh, because they couldn't afford to leave. They were sick or they just didn't have the, the money to get out. And so when the water started coming in, they would move up to, if they had a second floor, they would move up to their second floor. They tried to get away. Many people drowned because the water came in so quickly, and they were trying to just walk out to somewhere safe and get to some higher land. They couldn't. Uh, some people got stuck in their attics and couldn't get out and died there. Some people made it to their attics. They chopped through their roofs and got on their roofs and, um, and waited for days and days for the National Guard to come and save them. Stories you hear, uh, whether or not they're true, I think there's truth, to, a little truth to all of them. They're horrifying, horrifying. And per capita, they have more deaths than anywhere else in the city. They also receive the least amount of government funding for rebuilding. The rest of the city, the rich parts of the city, the people that had the means to make their livable again, they got a ton of resources, but the Lower Ninth Ward didn't because it just wasn't worth the investment. There was not enough return on that investment. That's not to say that the city hasn't done anything. There's some really beautiful things there, and they have. They put a school there. Uh, they put a community center there. They've tried to redevelop the park. So uh, over the last 20 years, especially as the Lower Ninth Ward people have fought for, um, for some redevelopment help, uh, we've seen some of that happen. But because of that, the Lower Ninth Ward feels like they have to fight for everything they get. Had a really large influx of um, 
white missionaries come into the Lower Ninth Ward afterwards, and they had a really um, well-intended ideas when they got there. They did a lot of good work, and the people there are grateful for all of the volunteer work that happened after Katrina. But oftentimes, because there was just a rela- an emotional connection to the people they were serving, they would say, hey, when I get home, I'm going to do this. I'm going to send you a bike, or I'm going to make sure you get Christmas presents this year. I'm going to, you know, help you get into that school. I'm going to, you know, whatever it was, they would make promises, and over and over and over again, those promises, well-intended, were broken. And the people of the Lower Ninth Ward began to see outsiders coming in um, as people who say one thing and do another. And... All of these things have created barriers to missionaries going in. You didn't grow up there, you got some work to do. Um, If you're not black, you've got some work to do. And it's not even a racial thing. That still hear me pretty good? Yeah, now you can hear me pretty good. Um, it's not even a racial prejudice thing. It's just that you, you just, you're just not from around there, right? You're, there's a real pride of place in the Lower Ninth Ward. Um, they feel like everything they have, they're going to get, they have to fight for, and you don't get that. And so there's just some what we would call missional uh, boundaries or missional barriers, right? I think is that Jason Chase? Yeah. Thank you, man. Um, so... Uh, when we moved to New Orleans, we didn't know exactly how, uh, where we were going to be. We knew that we wanted to uh, be involved in racial reconciliation. Think the church can uh, be on the front lines of being bringing peace to that situation, and it'll be a platform. It'll build a foundation uh, for us to move into culture in a way that's influential again. Um, we think that's important. And, um, we also knew that we wanted to work in an under-resourced neighborhood. Um, we don't really want to be about gift ministry because a lot of times just giving stuff away kind of perpetuates the poverty mindset. But we did want to be uh, uh, be about creating economic engines for an under-resourced neighborhood and community development engines, right? We say it this way. We don't want to just teach people how to fish. We want to help them buy their own ponds, right? So how can we help you develop your skills and your passions and, and, and create um, a flourishing for your family generationally how can how can we be a part of that in an under-resourced neighborhood when we got to new orleans we didn't really know for sure if um where we were going to be we knew for sure that we weren't going to be in the lower ninth ward it wasn't intentional i was just scared to death of it you hear 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 all the stories when we first moved there we started watching the show called your honor the very first episode this kid uh, is driving into the Lower Ninth Ward to put flowers on the spot. At Burn- it's at Burnell's, a little grocery, um, uh, super, uh, what are these called, convenience store down there. He was putting flowers on the place where his mom was murdered a year ago, right? And while he was there, this gang of dudes is coming down the street to kill him. And so that's the picture. I mean, all of what you see in media is, is those kinds of pictures about the Lower Ninth Ward. You, I'd only heard gangs and violence and drugs. Like, we, we, I just didn't, I didn't, there was nothing in me that wanted to deal with any of that. But over and over and over again, the first six months we were there, um, the Lower Ninth Ward kept coming up. And to the point where I was like, well, I guess I just need to go and at least figure it out. Right? And so I started driving around. I wouldn't get out of my car scared to death, if I'm just being honest with you. 
Um, and then a friend of mine in Missouri called and said, hey, y'all come up and hang out with us uh, during Christmas break. While I was there, he introduced me to a guy named Eddie Robertson who lives on the North Shore. Eddie goes to church on the South Shore and is friends with a guy named Ferdinand Carr who lives in the Lower Ninth Ward and has lived there for 40 years. Dr. Carr loves Jesus, <laughs> loves Jesus. Uh, you got to meet him, actually. And he very quickly came to love us. He and his wife, Carolyn, wrapped their arms around us um, like, like just these motherly and fatherly people for us. And he, he loves the Lower Ninth Ward. He wants to see God's kingdom come in that place. So we connected over that. We, our hearts joined together. And we've been praying every Tuesday, he, Eddie, and I, for the Lower Ninth Ward ever since. Um, we uh, uh, eventually, th- through my relationship with him, through another church planter who, um, who was from the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, began to push me through my perceptions of what the lower, light, lower ninth ward was and into what the reality was. I began to get out of my car. I began to walk. I began to talk and ask people questions. Uh, and I came to find that the people of the lower ninth ward are just like me. They love their families and they want to see good things come to them, that they want their kids to be healthy and get good jobs and be educated and make something of their lives. They want to see the lower ninth ward, the place that they love, that they have generations of family roots in. Like they want to see that place become something more than it is. They're no different from me. It was my perceptions about that place. It's not to say that there's none of the stuff that I'm afraid of. What I'm saying is it's just that's not who that place, that, that doesn't define that place. What defines it is that they're people. They're just people. Just people. So it captured my heart. And <laughs> I knew that that's where God had called me to be, but I also knew that I was super Caucasian, <laughs> like from the mountains of Caucasus, Caucasian, right? And uh, that that was going to be a problem because I'd heard, like, here's some things you're going to have to deal with. And so we knew immediately we were going to have to enter that place like missionaries. And we couldn't ride in on a white horse saying, hey, we've got all the ideas and we, we got it all figured out. Just come to this church and do our thing and, uh, and it's going to be okay. What I heard God say to me was, you don't have to ride on a white horse. You just got to be in the fight. As long as I'm, I can be out there scooping that horse's poop, as long as I'm in the fight, that's all that matters to me. So entering into this space like a missionary, like a student, like a learner, with humility and a posture of listening, right? I don't know what you need. You tell me what you need, and I'll see how God's uh, gifted us and the people that God brings around us to interact with those needs, right? And that all came from this passage of scripture that I want to walk through with you this morning. How are we going to enter into the space? Um, The passage of scripture, this isn't a very specific thing for each of us. It's kind of an overarching idea of a missionary God sent to a place, a, a world that wasn't his own, to a people that didn't, uh, that didn't operate the, the same way as the place he came from, right? But he condescended, he came down to us, right? And he entered into our space, became like us, and then he interacted with us in a specific way. And so what does a missionary posture look like? It looks like this. 
we're going to follow Jesus, then we must learn to walk as he walked, and this is how he walked. And so whether you're a church planter in the lower ninth ward, or you're a civil engineer, or you're a student, or you're a doctor, or you're flipping hamburgers because you're 16 and it's your first job, and wherever, whatever space you're in, whatever the land that God's called you to right now, this is how you take it. And it looks a lot different. Like a lot of the terminology we use is like this warlike terminology. It is a battle, but remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't fight with tanks and bombs and guns. We fight with love and servitude and submission and respect and dignity and justice. And those are our weapons. Those are the weapons that Jesus used, and he called us to use those too. So if you'll spend just a few minutes with me in John chapter 14, I want us to look at five words that come from this uh, passage of Scripture. And uh, I think we'll see how God's called each of us to enter into our missionary posture wherever we are. This is, this is exactly the posture we're endeavoring to take in the lower ninth ward. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A lot of times as Christians, we interact with the culture in really a few ways, right? We either dominate it, right? That's where we're picketing, right? And saying Harry Potter's the devil and God hates inter-people group here, right? Um, it's very aggressive, right? Turn or burn. Any, any of you guys ever been to a youth event where they were burning Barbie dolls, right? Weird. It's weird. Don't do that, right? And if you see somebody doing it, tell them, stop it. That's not, right? It's very judgmental. So this domin- domination kind of posture. We isolate, right? We become very exclusive. We kind of gather in our churches, and this is our little country club, right? And the members are members of our little club, and, and it's uh, like we're going to serve you. Like if this is church your way, right? Very consumeristic. So all of the programs are meant to make the people inside feel very comfortable and safe. And the world is bad. And if you get out there in the world, you're going to catch that bad. And so we kind of isolate, right? We duck and cover, and we bunker up. So we can either take this posture of, of domination. We can take this posture of isolation. Or sometimes the church can take this posture of accommodation, right? Or we're not just in the world, but we're also of it, right? And we become way too much like them. Uh, our holiness doesn't keep us separate for his service, but um, we're in it and we're of it. But the posture that I see Jesus taking in this passage and then all the way through this whole gospel is a posture of illumination, posture of incarnation, right? And that's the first thing we see in this passage. It says that the word became flesh. He put on our skin and became like us. And then he condescended, right? He, like, when you think about, you condescend to your child every time, uh, you, you know, if you have a toddler and they start talking to you and you get down on their level, right? And you're like, yeah, tell me. And sometimes we get weird and we use like baby talk or whatever because we want, why? We're trying to relate to them. We want them to know that, hey, I'm here. I'm here for you. I'm with you. I'm like you. I'm for you right? And this is what's good for you. 
So let me talk to you about it, right? We condescend, we get down on their level so that they can understand what we're saying to them. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us when he put on our flesh. I'm becoming, I'm coming to you. I'm becoming like you because I love you. And I, I want you to experience life all the way. The, all the way, the way that I created you to experience that, that Edenic experience of life in the garden where I dwell with you and, and you're taking the world somewhere that reflects the image that I created you in. That's what I want for you. That's the good life. That's the way that you were made to be. So I'm here with you to help show you how to do that. And he did. He, he was fully human. He was the kind of human that we were created to be but walked away from and have been struggling in exile, even in our own skin. Try, like we feel like we don't belong here because we don't. This isn't the, the kind of world that we were created to live in. So God put on our flesh, he became like us to show us how to live fully human. And if we're not careful, we'll move into this isolation or domination posture when we see people that aren't like us, right? Like we won't put ourselves in their shoes. We'll begin to separate them into groups of people that we like and people that we don't like. And usually the people that we like, we want to spend time with them why? because of what they can do for us. They make us feel good. They take us somewhere in, in, in life. They're the kind of people, right? It's safe. It feels, it feels easy, comfortable. I can promise you that it wasn't easy or comfortable for Jesus to leave the perfection of heaven and get into this mess, but he did. He did. That's the posture that he takes. And that's the posture that he calls us to take. He came eating and drinking. He was a friend of sinners. He never saw them with concern for their outward behavior or how much enjoyment he could get from them, but he looked at their heart. He assessed their heart in light of his plan and the possibility of redemption. First thing, posture I think we t- need to take is a posture of incarnation. We need to become like people. You see, Daniel did this, right? He wore the Babylonian clothes. He spoke the Babylonian language. He, he entered into that space as much as he could until that space said, we want you to interact directly with evil. Then he had to stand his ground. He was in it, but he wasn't of it. It's a missionary posture. The second is reputation. So the word became flesh, but then it says the word dwelt among us. I love the way the message talks about this. It says they moved into the neighborhood. He put on, uh, there's a couple of authors that I read. I, I wish I could remember. I think it was either Alan Hirsch, maybe Michael Frost, or Hugh Halter, but it, they, they talk about it like this. It's like Jesus moved onto your street, put a front porch swing on the front, built a big barbecue, not in the backyard with a fence around it, but in the front yard, and he's out there every chance he gets, right? And he's walking the neighborhood, and he's, 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 he's loving you, and he's inviting you to be with him and around him because he's put on your flesh. He, he, li- he sees you at the core of you, not just what happens on the outside, but he sees you in light of his plan and the possibility of the reconciliation of your life and the reconciliation, because it's a part of this plan of reconciliation of all things, 
right? That's his, that's his end goal. That's what's going to happen. You can count on it. In the end, all things will be reconciled back to God, and it'll, it'll, we'll experience life the way he had always meant it to be. That's going to happen. And for whatever reason, he calls us to be on this mission with him, co-missionaries with him, the reconciliation of all things by incarnating with people and then developing a reputation with him. I think somebody told me that Luke says, has said this before, that one-eleventh of Jesus' life was spent in ministry, the last three years. Thirty years prior, the first ten-elevenths, God, math is so hard, first ten-elevenths of his life, was he was just a dude. Maybe not just a dude, but he's the son of God, but he was a stonemason, Right? He worked with his hands. He built things. He created things from the earth. And he brought beautiful things into the world. He loved his mom and his brothers and his sisters and Joseph. For however long Joseph was around, it's just weird to me that Joseph just disappears after he's born. I don't know. But as long as he was around, he loved them. And he fell down and he scraped his knee. He used the bathroom on himself when he was a baby. Like, he was the person. And when he was 12, it says that he... Grew in respect with God and man. How? Because he lived fully human in front of people. He developed a reputation with them. Somehow we've come to this place in American Christianity where we believe the best thing we can do for someone spiritually is to get them in a place like this. But it is a lie. It is a lie to think that we as Christians can do more for the kingdom from our soapboxes or our pulpits than we can from our front porches or our sports teams, or our coffee shops, or our living rooms. Jesus shows us the way of integrated living so that everything we do is an act of worship. Everything can be an act of worship. When we're at work at our jobs, when we play during our recreation, when we relax at our coffee shops or worship in church like this this morning, all of those things speak of him and the goodness of him. They should speak of the goodness of the kingdom of heaven that is forcefully advancing in this place. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you find that all of your spiritual activity and all of your spiritual activity, you're either alone you're other, other Christians, you're probably not in the spot you need to be with Jesus. He put on our flesh because he loved us, but he lived amongst us because he liked us. Likest isn't a word, but you know what I'm trying to say. Because he likes us. He loves us, but he likes us. And he calls us to interact with the world in the same way. We gain father, f- favor with God through faith in Christ, but we gain favor with men as we live amongst them like him. <clears throat> the next posture I think we see in John 1.14 is that he had conversations with people. So incarnation, reputation, conversation. You remember the story of the woman at the well? I'm sorry, the adulterous woman? So she, come over here, she was caught in the very act of adultery, right? And she was probably brought in front of Jesus in the same way they found her. So you can imagine the shame, the embarrassment, the fear that gripped her heart because she knew that the law said that she was to be stoned to death. Her crime that she committed 
was legally and lawfully able to take her life, right? And so the leaders, the spiritual leaders, drug her, probably, drug her in front of Jesus. And they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says that she should die. What do you say? You remember how Jesus interacted with that situation? Girl, she didn't say anything, right? Here's this woman, broken, beaten, in fear that she's not going to survive the day, in the mud and the dirt, with her head down, just waiting for the weight of her sin to come crashing down around her. And Jesus sees her there, and they say, should we kill her? Should we pick up these rocks and take her life because of her unholiness? Jesus doesn't say a word, but he gets down in the dirt with her, right? And he begins to write some weird stuff in the sand. Man, I wish I knew what that was. And they ask him again, what should we do? And he gets up because he's there with her in the dirt, in her brokenness, in the muck, in the mess that she created with herself. He's there with her, down there with her. And he gets up and he says, whoever here hasn't sinned, you can throw a rock. And each of them, maybe it's because of something he wrote on the ground. Maybe it's just because of the power that Jesus spoke from inside of his relationship with the Father and the Spirit. For whatever reason, one by one, they dropped their rocks and they left. And in that moment, Jesus began to speak with this woman. And he says, where are your accusers? She says, they've gone, Lord. And he says, neither do I accuse you. She had sinned. She had sinned against herself, against her family, against her community. She sinned against that man that was standing right there beside her. And that man, above any other, had all authority and right. He was well within his rights. He could have justly let them do what they wanted to do. But he said, neither do I accuse you. And inside of that conversation, he captured her heart. She believed because he interacted with her in grace that he was for her. That he was for her. And she gave him his heart, or she gave him her heart. She trusted him because of the way that he interacted with her. And so as we are interacting with people too, it says that he he, uh, did so in grace and truth. And as we're moving into the world, sometimes we either get this backwards or we're all truth and very little grace or we're all grace and there's very little truth. But if we can, especially in the lower ninth ward, and it's probably true where you are as well, that you have to earn the right to be heard. You can't just go in someplace and expect people to believe that you have all the answers just because you say you're a Christian, right? Because the Christians have done a horrible job of living like Jesus for a long, long time. In the world that we live in, where we used to be in America, church used to be at the center of culture, and we had a lot of influence. It's not that way anymore. Our culture is very much like it probably was in Acts, 
or they're on the outskirts of culture, right? When Jesus was there, and what you're saying doesn't make sense to any of us anymore. We don't trust it, and you have to earn that right. Jesus earned the right to say to this woman the next thing, because we don't get to the confrontation, right? So incarnation, reputation, conversation, confrontation. If we don't get to this truth, all of this work is for naught. And this part's hard. This part's it's hard to get to this. And once you're there, it's hard to express it. But if we don't start talking about the truth, we don't start pouring truth into people's lives, it doesn't matter. But if you can earn the right to be heard, and you'll know that because people will start talking to you about the deep things in their life. And when they start talking to you about those things, then that means they trust you enough for you to speak into them. And when they start talking to you about how they've been, a, you know, unfaithful to their wife or how they're just not, can't understand how to take care of their kids or teach their kids about how to do this or, you know, issues that are going on with their body and they just feel broken and, like, they need, like, their health is gone or, like, I'm just not hitting it. Or, like, those deep things... That means that there's, there's trust there. And that's when you're able to speak truth into that. It's called gospel conversations, right? Gospel speaks to every area of our life. And I'm almost done. I know I've probably been going long already. My bad, Luke. Um, so we see here interact with, him, with her in grace. But then we see him interact with her with truth. Neither do I accuse you. And he says, woman... Go and sin no more. After he captured her heart, he began to move to her mind. Sometimes I think we go without any relationship at all. We go straight to the mind. But as grace keeps us in relationship with God and allows us to be deeply related to those outside the truth, outside the faith, truth is what transforms the people. People follow Jesus because they heard that he was a friend of sinners, but they were changed because he called them to live by another wisdom truth of God. When everyone left, and it was just her and Jesus left, she knew that Jesus loved her. The relationship by his grace was sure. But he didn't just say adios. He said, woman, go and sin no more. And truth cut through her pain, and through her dysfunction, and through her brokenness, and Jesus was offering her new life. And as we extend grace and relationship, we can't let it end there. Let me be very clear here. This is the hardest part of the process. And many, to be sure, never get to this point. But it's truth that causes transformation. Transformation is the last part of this missionary posture that we see Jesus take. And it's beautiful I just wish that 12 came after this because it would just flow so well. But I got to go back up. So verse 12. But that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, became, he gave them the right to become the children of God. A family. It's no small word. It shouldn't have a small meaning in our heart. Together we are the children of God, brothers and sisters. And this family has a business, right? And we should be about our Father's business, the reconciliation of all things. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Why? 
How can we pray that and not expect it to be? And I don't think that our work as a church, as the church is going to, we're going to build everything until it's all better and then Jesus is going to come back. I don't think necessarily that we're going to usher in the kingdom of heaven, but one day the kingdom of heaven is going to come and we're going to look to the east and see Jesus and he's going to, they're dead in Christ will rise and those who are still left are going to meet them in the air and we're going to have resurrected bodies and Jesus is going to recreate this world and we're going to spend eternity here in this place with him. The new Jerusalem is going to come out of heaven and make its place here. The measurements say that it's going to be half the size of the continental United States. It's going to be this huge, beautiful city with streets of gold that look like glass because they're so pure. Like it's just going to be wild, bro. Like you can't even really imagine it. And that's where we're going to spend forever. And when we get there, we're going to kind of look at God's plan. Because it's his plan. It's not our plan. We just get to work it with him. He calls us. He, give, he gives us the right and the privilege and the honor to work his, this plan with him. And one day we're going to get to see this whole plan unfold. And we're going to look up and over to the right. And we're going to be like, oh, look, there's, there's my bit. That's the part that he let me do. And right now, I can't really see, right, if I'm building this cathedral, I can't really see the master architect's plan for what that cathedral is going to look like. Right now, I can just see my rock and my little scrolls that I get to engrave on it. I can't see the whole thing, but it's really, like, I know that it's this plan for this big, beautiful thing. One day, we're going to walk out of the stone yard, and we're going to walk into the light, and we're going to look up, and we're going to see what Jesus has done what he's done, and it's a masterpiece, and we're going to get to see our bit there. We get to work for the kingdom, and we get to be a part of this work. This plan will come to fruition. It is sure. You can count on it. Don't let it pass you by. Take the land. Take the land at great cost to yourself, maybe even your own life. It's not easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to cost you a lot. Like we walked away from a retirement and a regular paycheck. Like we, I get it, bro. I get it. It's going to cost you something. But what you give up is the parable of a man that finds a treasure in a field, right? Like he saw it, but it's so valuable that he was willing to sell all that he had so he could buy that field because what he gave up for what he got in return made what he gave up look stupid. There's no comparison. Take the land. Let me pray for you. God, you are good. And we know that. We know that's true because you have shown us your goodness over and over and over and over again. God, I just pray this morning that you will remind us of that goodness, Lord, that our faith in you doesn't have to be blind. We just look back, just look backwards. Remember the goodness you've poured out on us over the years, Lord, that that memory, that truth, well, that faith will push us into the hard things you have for us in the future. Remember your love and your kindness. And Lord, we'll be missionaries. That we'll see the places you've called us to. That we'll see the people that make up those places, God, in light of your plan. 
They deserve our dignity. They deserve our honor. They deserve our respect. And it will move into their lives. It will, because you moved into ours, into the muck and mess that we made, you pulled us out of that, Lord, that we will go and do the same, that we'll walk as you walked, that we'll get into people's messes, we'll love them well. And when you, you called us too, Lord, that we'll show them how the gospel renews all things and will speak truth into their lives. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name.